Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Twilight Eclipse is over. Please stop taking your clothes off. Jacob, what are you doing? I'm here to warn you. She's leave now. She has a right to know. What? We've been tracking the situation in Seattle for a while. Unexplained disappearances. Killings. Someone's creating an army. An army of vampires? They're coming here. This movie should have been called Twilight Thruple. <laughs> Does what the is church... Uh, ask the Volturi... Does the church allow a thruple? That's really the central question of of Bella's world right now. Uh, okay, so uh, hold on, hold on. I have to, <laughs> I have to ask okay. the question here. Talking about the titles again. Mm-hmm. This oh, one is Eclipse. Now I'm 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 searching to see if I can find a reason why uh, Stephanie Meyer said, "Oh, Eclipse is the perfect follow up to the New Moon." Didn't you find that? And it was because it sounds cool. I found the new moon uh, thing because it was the darkest part of Bella's life. And I'm trying to see right now if there's something that she said about Eclipse. The book was inspired and influenced by Wuthering Heights. So we had Romeo and Juliet last time. And here we have some Emily Bronte. Okay. That's interesting. So she's pretty much rewriting the. This is essentially like uh, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, or Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Right, we're just rewriting stuff with horror monsters in them. This is what she said when she was comparing Edward and Jacob to Heathcliff and Edgar Linton. She said, "Quote: You could look at Edward and Jacob from one perspective and say, okay, this one is Heathcliff and that one is Edgar." And someone else might say, no, wait a second. Because of this reason and that reason, that one is Heathcliff and the other one is Edgar. I like that confusion because that's how life is. Okay. I think that, one, they just go read the original, please. (laughs) I don't think she, I don't think they did it well. That, I don't think that confusion, well, (laughs) serves the movie. The movie just ends up and confused. But that's where she was with, uh, Romeo and Juliet with the last one. Like, that was another one where it didn't quite gel. Yeah, it, it's just like, okay, she's taking better properties and she's twisting elements of them into uh, this, you know, these these books, these romance novels of hers. Yeah. Marry Me, also. I've just decided that I'm going to take on the role of Bella and occasionally in a just just throw it in. Just yell out lines from Bella <laughs> and Edward. Just throughout to you. Just to you throughout the entire conversation. I'll say no, not until you're 18, Pete. Just just to clarify yeah. though. Marry me. Just to clarify. I could not find anything as to why she chose Eclipse for the name of the book. Interestingly, this the thing that came up most about the book is the fact that the cover of the book had a red ribbon on it like a torn ribbon and that seems to be kind of uh, a whole thing about it because um the 
the broken ribbon, as she says, represents choice because Bella has to choose between her love for Edward and her friendship with Jacob. Okay. Yeah. You make a red red ribbon symbolize anything you want anymore. It's lost all meaning. Um, all right. Well, when this movie came out, like before, it was PG-13 here in the States by the old MPAA for intense sequence of action and violence and some sensuality. All right. We're getting back to the sensuality. Marry me. Okay, uh, so this film follows up. Bella has come back from Italy. She's grounded by her dad because she disappeared <laughs> off to Italy without asking. And uh, That's good. Good parenting. <laughs> You're grounded, young lady. And uh, she's still in high school. Seems to dish class a lot. And she's still you know, committed to Edward now that he's back in her life. He's committed to her. They both love each other madly. She wants to be a vampire. He wants to marry her. She won't marry him unless he makes her a vampire. He doesn't want to make her a vampire because of what that means. But they kind of agree in some fashion at the start that they will do this when she turns 18. That kind of sets a clock going because now she's got until she turns 18 to kind of hang out with Jacob because Jacob won't like her anymore once she is a vampire. Yeah. But also, Jacob's not talking to her as the movie starts. Even though they were besties in the last movie, he is um, he's a little pissy because she uh, because of all the love she has for Edward. And yeah. uh, there's conversations about imprinting and a lot of flashbacks and all sorts of stuff going well, on in this movie. Okay, you you gloss over a couple of important things, not the least of which is Jacob's hunky, rainy introduction. That whole conversation about imprinting is about a muscle-bound motorcycle ride, man. <laughs> all right, let's talk. Where do you want to start? Do you want to talk about her relationship with Edward? And the marriage and all of this sort of stuff. And then we can move into Jacob and then we can move into vampires and werewolves. Yeah, and that's fine. The Volturi. That's fine. The, yeah. the Volturi right. high school mascots who come over. Oh, God, Andy. <laughs> all right. Let's start with Edward. So, Bella, so the last movie ends with Edward saying, marry me. And Bella goes. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, right. They wake up in a field. <laughs> That is color timed so poorly. Like it is just the color in this movie is just taken any of the mood from the last movie. It just made it completely like abs absence of all mood at all. Even a bad mood. It's just boring. Like the texture of this movie is boring, but it opens in the saddest, like trying to be green, aspirationally green field with some sparkly face and the marry me conversation that does not end. Marry me. I don't want to marry me. I don't, but uh, marry me. And then some kissing. And so they're actively making out in the thing. She's still all horny for him, but at least she goes home by four so that the grounding stays in place. It is, uh, it, it's just a, ah, it just starts off on a tone that is, I, I, I can't, I don't have a lot of patience for it. It doesn't start in a way that, well, it, it starts actually, we're going to talk about this, the baby vampires. I call them baby vampires because that's really where it starts. It starts in Seattle. But you'll note we don't 
we didn't naturally start there because that's such a weirdly clamped on part of this story uh, of this movie, the way this movie is put together, which is just like juggling story cards. We'll talk about the newborns when we get to the vampires, because like the first film, there are antagonistic elements scattered throughout the film that are somewhat tied in. But just like the last film, the last two films, really, they're dropped in here and there just designed to have a big act three climax. And that's really the way that Stephanie Meyer seems to be crafting these. Let's have some, you know, another serial killer is running loose in the woods of Washington for like in the background of the first two acts that will become the the final act of the film. Meanwhile, romance, romance and love triangle drama. And that's kind of how all three of the films are set up. This is the central problem that, that I have, which is I think this movie is better. These movies were actually better when they were smaller. The bigger the scale, the dumber the film. Uh, well, I, we know you don't like the romance. That's your big thing with these ones is the romance is the hardest part to deal with. Well, I thought you didn't like the romance last time. Well, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about you. I struggled <laughs> with the romance also. But I'm specifically saying that, I mean, coming into a conversation about Edward and Bella, it's, I mean, immediately it's going to be hard for you because it's all of this sappy romance as these two uh, really kind of um, debate marriage and vampirism and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that's not even getting to the love triangle part. That's just the drama we have with these two characters because now they're committed and they love each other. And now we have to hear them, you know, have these um, debates about marriage and everything forever. And it just, it's, it's a slog. And, and this one, I really did struggle with the romance and it's interesting because this, this film felt the slowest to me so far of the three films. The first two, they moved pretty quickly. And even with kind of the, the sloggy romance in the last one, it, it moved fairly quickly and I didn't have any issues with it. With Eclipse, I looked at my watch and I'm like, oh, we're only halfway through this movie. And I feel yeah. like it's almost over. What is going on right. with this particular one? And I don't know. I mean, Melissa Rosenberg, again, is back adapting the book for the screen. So she's doing the same same adaptation. Again, we have a different director. This time it's David Slade. You know, I mean, I don't know if he's, I would say he's a great director, but he's done some interesting things like Hard Candy and 30 Days of Night and sure. a lot of TV. But I don't know if there's anything that I would say, oh, that's that's a Sladeism. Like, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything that uh, and even in the last film, like Chris White's was doing some interesting things with camera movements and the way that he was pa- the passage of time and stuff. This film, I didn't find anything that really stood out that kind of was interesting. And so it just was um, kind of a very straightforward adaptation, I felt. And the struggle I had with that is that Catherine Hardwick at least seemed to be directing with a little bit of camp that made it more interesting and entertaining. Like there was a little more uh, something going on with the characters. And so far, both Chris Weitz and David Slade seem to be directing this very straightforward with no camp in mind, just tra- quote, staying true to the material. And I don't think that's a good, I-, I mean, maybe it's good because of Stephanie Meyer and her fans, but for, you know, an actual film, I, I feel like it ends up, making it really kind of sappy and and sloppy. And it just, it, it becomes a slog. I, I 100% agree. 
when you look at what they introduce here, right, they introduce these elements like you already mentioned. We want to have a big three act cli- or, or third act climax. Uh, and, and that becomes a big battle. Where did you stand on the way they because it, it, that to me, like introducing the baby vampires and having that line uh, that that was largely unfulfilling for me, that whole line of of bringing up the baby vampires and leading to that big third act. Just just because we will deal with baby vampires in later films, I think we need to just call them newborns, which is what they're called in the film, because it's going to get <sighs> very confusing when we so, have. But why when don't we, we have real baby vampires, actual baby vampire, we could call it. A, I dare I say a newborn. <laughs> it's a baby. Okay, I'm just saying. Just neither clear, one of us can actually understand win this argument that there it's was dumb. no baby in this film. Right. Okay. Fine. So they're just clarify. Stup- they're they're stupid frenzy vampires. Uh, and so, but but that whole thing to me, I'm watching this. I'm thinking this is why I think this book is. It largely, like, I don't know how we could have expected anything different from this book, because that final fight was so anemic. Uh, it just demanded, frankly, more violence. It demanded more, a little bit more gore. It demanded more intensity. Like, it was it was not an intense experience watching this movie. And and uh, and I feel like this this makes it like this is the, the problem with sticking so firmly to the source material. Uh, that the source material does not make a good, I don't know what this movie is. Is it an action movie? Is it a romance movie? Is it a coming-of-age movie? Is it a marriage movie? It was it was just a slog and a bore. Um, but but it all leads to, and I, I would like to hear what you think about the action elements as we get there, but the central question I think for you and I is, are you, how, where do you stand on Team Edward versus Team Jacob in this movie? Are you still one or the other? It's hard to be Team Jacob, ever. I find it a weird setup. And, and like, partway through this film, I wrote down in my notes, so clearly the Team Edward, Team Jacob debate is over because everybody seems to be pretty firmly planted on the idea that she's she's going to hook up with Edward and they're going to get married and Jacob is, you know, just kind of a, a friend. And then all of a sudden the story shifts and Jacob is, like, all over her and he's forced kissing her. And, uh, you know, and, and demanding, you know, that she's she really loves him and all this sort of stuff. I'm like, oh, OK, so we had to get more Team Edward, Team Jacob nonsense into this movie. And it's all forced upon by Jacob in the film every time. And it just never feels like there was ever a Team Jacob like Team Edward, Team Jacob honestly seems like an artificial an artificial element brought on by fans who just are voting which one do they actually like better and think is hotter. It doesn't seem to be in any way, shape, or form related to the story because there's never a debate in the film about which one is she going to pick. It's weird that this is a thing that people debate because that's not how it is. So I think it's just my read of it. In all the middle-aged women I saw wearing a Team Edward or Team Jacob shirt is, I think he's the hotter one. Like, that's really what I think it boils down to. This is a hot or not discussion. I totally agree with you. And I was so frustrated uh, about that because the movie starts off with Edward, who is saying, like, the worst codependent, like, emotionally manipulative things. Yeah, I broke your truck, but I'm trying to keep you safe because I love you. Like, like, just disgusting. And then, of course, Jacob is the most unlikable, like, peak 
unlikable in this movie. The, the whole team should be Team Bella, get out of this town. They are both bad for you. I would love Breaking Dawn to be the story of Bella actually realizing that she is in two terrible, emotionally manipulative relationships, and the action is her trying to escape them both, because that would be a redeeming movie. Like, that would show character growth. As it is, it's just not. It's none of that. It's empty calories. It's as empty calories. She needs to, she needs to get out. She needs to go away um, because they're both terrible. I actually was, I think there was a debate in the last movie, I think, because they made Jacob kind of likable and adorable and he was going through some stuff, right? Like, I think you could have made the case that, yeah, okay, there's a team, Jacob, it's fine. But in this movie, that is all put to bed. They're both terrible. They're both terrible and unlikable and she needs to move on. I think it just boils down to the way that Stephanie Meyer crafts her characters and writes the story. And some of it, the way that the performers um, are, or the actors are giving us their performances. But I, it's, you know, I mean, I genuinely do think that Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson are good actors when in the right roles. This franchise, I mean, and, you know, there has been plenty of talk about how Robert Pattinson has kind of dismissed it. and Kristen Stewart probably has too. They both have gone on to do much better things, much more interesting things in their careers. And I feel like there is an element in this of looking at what how how challenging it can be for a good actor to deliver on a bad script. You look at Natalie Portman and anybody involved in the Star Wars prequels. They are doing their best, but they're really not that great. Like the it's it's tough when you have a director who is clearly um not designed to direct actors working with actors who have a terrible script, you end up with Star Wars prequels. And in this case, I mean, I can't speak to David Slade's directing specifically, but again, he's having to work with Stephanie Meyer level material and it just comes across. It's, it's like this treacle that just these actors just can't, you know, get through. And it just, I mean, at, at the very least, Kristen Stewart doesn't have to do as much nonsense anger emoting as she did in the last film and isn't oh, like sleep rage right <laughs> yeah right so she seems to be a little more sane here but still it's just they're they're not given a lot to work with you brought up imprinting a, a bit ago there's the imprinting is the setup isn't that when jacob peed on her <laughs> wondering that the whole time they kept talking about scent in this movie and not one of them peed anywhere <laughs> so, but but the imprinting conversation now again i haven't seen breaking dawn nor have i read the book uh but i don't think there was any imprinting going on here in eclipse right that whole imprinting conversation is about ridiculousness to come right like this is the setup to a joke we have yet to laugh at am i right because he says outwardly i'm not imprinting on you i just like you right I don't know. I had the impression for a while that he had imprinted on her, but just hadn't told her. Like, he, the way that he sets that up, it seems like, yeah, I totally already imprinted on you. I just, it's a secret. I, I can't, I can't tell you yet because I can't get you to stop talking about this stupid vampire. And so that's, that's where I thought he was. But, um, but yeah, it hasn't come up. So I guess to your point, yeah, it might be something that we do get more of in later films. Yeah, I that's my understanding, only because I have heard others make fun of imprinting in the later movie. And so I look forward to getting there. The thing that I that, can I just say what really drives me nuts about imprinting? Oh, please. Is imprinting 
I don't know. It seems like something that that they would do to something else or somebody else that would make them more interested in them, you know, like like dropping their scent and that would make her fall for him, you know, like a love potion y sort of thing, like whatever. The fact that that they imprint on something else, like I'm gonna imprint on you, it, it's just a weird decision for them to to do because it's like well yeah but you have to make sure that person actually likes you before you imprint on them like it just i don't i I guess i don't really understand where she's going with that unless it's kind of like a dog who kind of imprints okay you're my alpha and i'll do whatever you say like is that what that's exactly how i read how i watch it that's you just described it. And again, leaning in on those weirdly unhealthy relationship vibes. Like, well, this is unavoidable. Thing we know about Stephanie Meyer, it's these she's books are all about it. unhealthy relationships. It's like Stephanie Meyer. It's like she's writing books that are therapy for her and she's getting nowhere. Right. <laughs> like the work, it's she's not able to actually do the work. I, I feel uh, for for a little bit like I know I, I can write some dark stuff. I, I'm, I'm working. I'm working through some stuff myself. No judgment. This just doesn't land uh, well. So that's the imprinting. I, I also think if I were to generously be Team Jacob, she goes to his house on the motorbike, right? They get on, she's on the bike and they have the imprinting conversation and she goes to the house. And now there are two women in the, in the clan. One of them is not a werewolf. It's Emily, who we met last time, who has the big scar on her face. And the other is Leah, who is now a a werewolf and miraculously she wears a shirt not like all the other werewolves so (laughs) that's a thing don't you at any point think maybe the reason jacob loves bella so much is because there are just no other women in in the tribal lands like he found bella and just is leaning in he needs to get out too he needs to leave and meet some more people uh, because this is, it's pretty ridiculous. Of course he's going to. And also, why is nobody else in the wolf pack in as good a shape as Taylor Lautner? They're all a little bit saggy in this movie. Every one of them. And they put Taylor Lautner through the ringer. He looks great. I guess I don't have a huge issue with them. I like that, at least in some capacity. I'm like, well, you know what? I like that Stephanie Meyer was integrating a, a Native American tribe into the story. I think that's actually kind of I give her kudos for actually doing something interesting like that with it. And I thought that was kind of uh, fun to see. And I enjoy seeing, uh, you know, we haven't really talked about many of the actors, but uh, like we've had, uh, well, funny enough, Taylor Lautner, of course, is like, you know, barely, uh, barely any Native American blood in him. But they but they all they all can trace back to First Peoples. That yeah, That is, I right, know, right. something that, that was important yeah. to, to the original team. Yes, right, right. But uh, like Gil Birmingham, who plays his dad, I enjoy seeing him in this. We had Graham Greene in the last film pop up, and I enjoyed that. It's like there Both are people... of those guys. They are amazing in everything they do. Yeah, I love watching absolutely, them. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so that is an element that we really haven't talked about at all so far. And I do enjoy that she did that. And so to that end, it's like, okay, I, I like actually spending time with the werewolves because I enjoy kind of just seeing their world. It seems a little more exciting than the vampire world i suppose i i feel like the connection to like making native american peoples werewolves is sort of the most obvious choice in the in the pacific northwest like like what are the like i look at a tribe of native american people 
what is the closest I can come to making a horror story out of it, like a, this this horror romance. Oh, it's going to be a pack of wolves. Like there, it just feels it feels like obvious low hanging fruit. It, it doesn't feel like it's doing the the tribe any <laughs> favors. <laughs> like taking taking the the history and stories that are probably passed down over generation after generation and and making it a big budget m- movie of this caliber. I I don't think it's probably. I don't know. I I haven't read anything about like did, you know what are the tribes of this area think of of Twilight? Are they big Twilight heads? I don't know, but I my hunch is that it's it's a it's a hard watch. Well, I, I you know I'm sure that's the case in most films that involve a Native American tribe in some capacity because largely you know especially when they're written by white people, it's they're probably throwing a lot of of elements into the story that are pretty ridiculous, you know, and I, I think that, yeah, I, I think that's often going to be the case. I, and, and I agree. I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree. I'm just saying, I'm glad that at least there's some representation, you know? Yes. So I like that at least we're getting like, I mean, I didn't know that the, about the Quillu tribe. And so it's kind of like cool to just kind of look at them as a, a tribe that's up there and, and look at um, the realities of them outside of the film. And so I, to that end, I like that we actually have some of that. Okay. Yeah. But to your point, um, Bella and Jacob, it's a weird, I don't know. I, I struggle with the relationship that they have in the film. And it, it feels like the whole point is for Jacob to, you know, to dig on Edward the whole time and to try proving to her why vampires are so bad. I mean, he, he brings her to that, is like a council meeting. I can't remember what he describes it as where they're actually telling stories and talking about kind of some of the histories and stuff. And it seems like the only reason he's doing that is because like, you need to know the truth about these terrible people that you're hanging out with sort of thing, you know? And so like, that seems to be his intention throughout the film is like, let me show you how bad vampires are. Uh, And then, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a frustrating version that we have of Jacob throughout this story. Are we I mean, OK, I'm going to I'm going to say something and I know I'm going to regret it immediately afterward, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I feel like it's important to note. Are we in Empire Strikes Back territory with this movie? Like, are are we unable to see the fact that every single character is one note because we're supposed to take it in as the whole series and we won't really understand their depth until Breaking Dawn Part Two? Is that where we are? Do I have at least something to look forward to in your estimation? I guess I haven't heard of that comparison for before about um, Empire. Well, the Empire Strikes Back is the dark one. It's like the dark one. Everybody loses and die, and and it gets hurt and loses a hand and all that stuff. And so, it, by the end of Jedi, it's rejoicing. Like it's a, it's a, it is. It, it when you look at each individual movie, they're great. But when you look at the whole arc, there's something different, right? You get the whole, you get the whole story. That's the theory, and that that this is the darkness before the dawn. This is Joseph Campbell. This is all those things. Well, this is the technically the eclipse before the dawn. Is <laughs> this is the eclipse <laughs> right after the new moon before the breaking dawn? Yeah. That's that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like maybe I need to like I'm I'm reacting to this movie because I feel to me it's a bad movie, but maybe I will like it more when I see the next two. There's always that opportunity to rethink things in a story when you look at the later properties, especially when it's been a whole franchise. Right. 
but still, the film is the film. Empire Strikes Back is still a great movie. You don't need Return of the Jedi to go, oh, now I get it. Yeah, wow, that was a great movie. I wish that I had known. Like, you don't need that. And so that's why I was a little um, um, thrown by the question, because uh, tying it to Empire Strikes Back seems like such a, a I, great I admitted sin. that. No, I admitted <laughs> that up front. To the I just want to know. I said that's where this would go. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But I just, but I, I, but again, I just, I don't know if I think that this is still like, there's nothing about this stands that stands out as, uh, like even looking at the two films that came prior to it without having looked at the two films that come afterward, nothing about this makes it stand out as the better of the three or the best of the three. Like it just, it, it feels like at this point, kind of the low point of the three, like it's, it's a tougher one to get through. We introduced a really interesting group with the Volturi in the last film. And now we've got just like this little, the, the high school click of the Volturi coming over here, um, head up by Dakota Fanning. Uh, like, I can't even figure out what they're trying to do. Like, are they really kind of behind Victoria and what she's doing with Riley and the newborns or cause she seems to just be, keeping her eye on them like oh they're gonna do my bit or they're gonna get done what i want them to do it just like that whole thing is just like the volturi was interesting why are we just left with this group to represent the volturi now yeah why do we still have victoria like she is the most the least interesting antagonist that has still been trailing since the first film it's like why do we still have to deal with this stupid character that was never interesting to begin with like she was never a good antagonist and we keep having her in every film it's like good lord are we not done with her yet i wonder that too because my hunch was in the beginning they wanted to create this ominous presence in victoria that she was going to be hunting them for like five movies right that's what it felt like to me like this could there was opportunity here to make her like voldemort right like there was this the name that it, she who shall not be named uh because she's going to be there and the conflict will come in the final movie when we actually get reach the end of her story and boy did that not play out for old bryce dallas howard like that that ended up being the most feeling like a completely shoehorned, like, oh, my God, we made a huge mistake trying to do this Victoria subplot. We have to end it quickly. And so they did it while camping. I, uh, yeah, well, let's just talk Victoria for a little bit. Victoria, they changed the casting. Um, we had beforehand, it was uh, Rachel Lefevre or Lefevre however you want to say her last name, uh, who had been Victoria in the first two films. They had actually asked Bryce Dallas Howard to be Victoria in the first film, but she turned it down because she thought the role was too small. And so uh, Lefebvre, however you just said it, took took it on. And she did okay for a small role in the first two films. She has a bigger role here, but did not get asked, apparently. Uh, I guess. The way that it sounds is that Summit Entertainment said that there had been scheduling conflicts. There was another film that that Rachel had been signed on to called Barney's Version, and they both were filming about the same time. So without even 
really doing anything to like have any conversations with her about it. They just recast her and they went back to Bryce Dallas Howard and brought her on. Um, Rachel said that she was stunned by the decision, greatly saddened not to continue the role. And she said she never thought she would lose the role over a 10 day overlap. I guess the studio, the studio then said that, you know, it's an, it's an ensemble production that has to accommodate the schedules of numerous actors while respecting the established creative vision of the filmmaker and most importantly, the story. Uh, so yeah, it was, uh, I think it was frustrating for, for her in particular. And, um, but again, it's a part I just don't care about. So <laughs> I, I think I, I just feel like we need to note that Barney's, that, that Twilight Eclipse is a five on the IMDb scale and Barney's version is a uh, Jake Hoffman, Paul Giamatti film at a 7.3 on IMDb. And so I feel like we need to go watch that. <laughs> she might not. Have, she might have actually made out. <laughs> and it has Scott Speedman. So there's our little Underworld crossover. Yes, there's the Underworld crossover. Absolutely. <laughs> so Adam McGoyan is in Barney's yeah, version. Dustin Hoffman. I mean, come uh, on. It's Mini Driver. Paul, no, Jake Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman is he in it as well? Um, Dustin Hoffman is like the the dad in the film, so I'm I'm guessing. I don't. I just don't see him credited he's on anywhere. the poster. <laughs> like he and Paul. G that's Jake Hoffman. It, that's what's so weird. It looks like he's on the poster, but I don't see him credited on I, on the first page of IMDb. Why would oh, they I'm do that on the movie poster? And oh, it says and Dustin Hoffman. You're right, but he's not on the first page of IMDb yeah, credits. That's because he's an and. Actually, is that that's that's Dustin Hoffman talking to Jake Hoffman on the poster? No, he's talking to uh, Paul Giamatti on the poster. That's not Paul Giamatti. <laughs> it's Paul poster. Giamatti. Anyway, enough Barney version. Let's go back to the movie at hand. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so that so we talked about Victoria, uh, and but yeah, the the whole story. So, okay, romance aside, it's nonsense. We're really frustrated with both Team Edward and Team Jacob. Vampires, we, we have this dumb little Volturi group that's wandering around and watching and occasionally causing pain. And then we have Victoria and her whole plan, as it has been over all three movies, is to get back at the woman who killed her man. And that, of course, is Bella. And so... She knows that Alice can see the future, limited bits of the future. So, so she sets up this weirdly nonsensical plan where she's like, okay, I'm going to turn Riley and get him to fall in love with me. And he's going to create this army of newborns. And then we're going to go down there and, and attack uh, the Bella and all the Cullens. And I'm I'm just going to kind of make my decision at the last minute because Alice then won't be able to see me and stuff. And and that's kind of that's the story. And and so she and the newborns uh, and Riley go down to to battle. And of course, we learn how deadly a vampire hug can be. And uh, we also we also get the um, the truce between the Cullens and the uh the werewolf uh people as they mm -hmm. decide to work together and uh fight this group and that's that's kind of what the, where the story builds to 
I mean, you you've kind of been a fan of the vampire element. Well, uh, kind of the supernatural element, I guess we'll say the most in the films up to this point. I mean, does this one do you like this one? Do you like what they're doing here? So let me tell you, I'll tell you what I like. There are two shots, individual shots in this movie where the camera pans down and all the Cullens are spread out like 10 feet apart in like a review. <laughs> they're, they're just standing there like at a fashion show or something, but it's super dramatic. And you can tell it's like, this is going to be the trailer shot. And I like those shots. I think they're very dramatic. And I think the Cullens are good looking people and they're uh, kind of sinister and adorable at the same time and they run so fast and so that stuff i um i i'm i'm fine with that like that that's the bit of exuberance that i like the showing off the vampire stuff um i have completely lost my taste uh for edward and i think the little um the the okay the riley new, riley, what are we oh, newborns? riley newborns riley 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 and yeah, the newborns that's, it's, that's the band um, riley and the newborns it, it's a terrible band. And like they do this, they do this bit. They do a bit. We've seen it before. We saw it. I, I think I don't I the one that comes to mind is Pirates of the Caribbean, but I know we've seen it before that. Um with the sinister thing, I should probably swamp thing or creature from the black lagoon or something, where the creature is underwater and they come up and you just see their head rise above the surface. And that is a great great tool for demonstrating so many things so quickly right the imperviousness of these creatures the they you're they're unable to kill them because they don't they the elements can't get to them like uh they just are sinister and somehow that scene with these newborns riley and the newborns again is just like inert to me they've just made it somehow they cut it together in a way that has no propulsive mechanism like there's nothing in it that is driving me toward it and that's why it's an example of why i think this whole storyline is shoehorned into a movie that does not want it there right the movie does not want the new riley and the newborn story um it be, because it's episodic the saga is the saga. The story about all these other people is is, you know, what the movie wants to be about, even though I don't love it. The rest of it feels like movie of the week. And I think it's it takes a movie that I already struggle with and it makes it uh, e- even less engaging, more confusingly edited, more confusingly shot and economy of characters is just broken because now I have to keep track of this new guy that I don't know that I only knew from the opening shot and posters. And now he's supposed to be a big tool of the evildoer. And I think it is, uh, I think it is misguided. And I actually think it's misguided story, right? Like it's, I would I am now actually curious. I probably won't, but I'm curious to see how this is integrated into the book because it is completely episodic. It, it, Riley, I, I can't I can't imagine Riley existing in the book that comes before or after. I Riley seems like he was a tool designed for the book just to get Victoria past Alice's, you know, future abilities, future seeing abilities. That's it. That's the only reason he's here. And it 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 plays it it's incredibly dull. It doesn't do anything. It just introduces like the nonsense of the newborns wreaking havoc in Seattle, which is never really dealt with other than, oh, there's more killers on the loose. I mean, that's it's like the 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 news answer 
that we get on on every time they turn on the TV news. It's just like you know, there's more killers loose, and that's I don't know. It just it's frustrating the way all of that plays, and I I, I don't enjoy it at all. Is this the same feeling you had with the first movie? The, all the criminal elements and the murders on the loose. Yeah, it just it it plays as things that are just shoehorned into a story that's not about them that are only in there so that we get something happening in the third act. At a minimum in the begin in the first movie, it was peripherally about them because it was a mistaken identity thing, right? Um, like it, there was this, like there are vampires there. And so maybe it's those vampires that are killing the, uh, at least for the audience until the halfway through when we realize it was Laurent. I'm not saying it's uh, not a thin connection, but it at least is peripherally present uh, in this movie. I feel like there's nothing like there's no, no connection. Even if you are generous about the Victoria connection because of the way she's been handled, I think it's, uh, it's not enough. I, it also, makes me very confused about the rules of the Volturi because they seem to have this thing about like, well, we have to stop them if they start eating too much or making it, making us too visible to the public sort of thing. Like, you know, you're okay feeding as long as you don't turn it into something where we're on the news. Meanwhile, the Volturi is bringing in whole tourist groups and devouring them. So I don't really understand their, their position. It just seems very, haphazardly thrown together as far which which i think is the same through all of these films as far as the way that the rules are determined and it just it makes for a frustrating experience so i i think one of the things that this movie is trying to do to to bring us greater affinity with the cullens is give us backstory of two of the cullens in a way that we haven't had before rosalie and uh broody mcfang they they both get flashbacks uh, Jasper. Jasper, yeah. And what do you think of of that? We see Rosalie's story. She's flashback to it. Turns out she was dating a bad guy in the 1800s and was, I you know, somehow vampire raped. It wasn't it wasn't great. And then Jasper was a tool. Of she was just raped. She was just raped. And then she turned into a vampire and then wrought a Quentin Tarantino style hell yeah. down upon them all. And Jasper. During the Civil War. He ended up becoming a newborn who was used and abused by a woman who is essentially doing what uh, Riley was doing in Seattle, which is why suddenly he was yes. the expert that they were turning to when in the training montage. <laughs> Just like, I was like, why? Why is Jasper the guy who knows everything? I know he said exactly like seven words yeah, in the last several suddenly, movies. And now he's the big star with a southern accent. It was strange. <laughs> and we had a very brief flashback to Edward when he was in the hospital in the first movie talking about what, when Carlisle turned him. Yes. But that's been it. And so it was very strange to suddenly be thrust into these backstories for two of these characters that, I mean, it came out of nowhere. It's like, why are we suddenly being subjected to this it it it's never been a part of this franchise up to this point and then suddenly we're getting all this backstory and why because these characters had seemed pretty thin up to this point sure exactly that's why but but does it help the story like am i getting something from them i mean i guess jasper mainly just because he explains this stuff with the newborns but otherwise it just seemed like i mean honestly it felt like filler because 
they realize, oh, you know, we don't really have enough to make this a feature like the movie. Okay, let's put some flashbacks in there. Yeah. It was weird. Very weird. But they end up making a movie that's, you know, over two hours. Like, well, bar- yeah, it, barely, it's yeah. not like they didn't have exuberant romantic dialogue and dramatic pauses to fill that time. It was an odd choice. And it does make me wonder. Well, now we have those. Are we? Get- I mean, I guess we saw a little bit of Carlisle because we see, uh, I think, in the second movie when we're learning about the Volturi, we kind of go into the. Yep. The painting on the wall, which happens to be a photo, which happens to turn into a flashback of the past when we see the Volturi. Which is oh, a cool trick. Yeah. Visually. Seen that it, was cool seen it before. It was seen it done better, but sure. But that was that was their only sense is getting Carlisle a little flashback to Carlisle that he used to be part of the Volturi before he left because he didn't want to he wanted to go vegan, basically. Because he's a vegan, yeah. Um, yeah. But we've never seen we've never seen Esme, the mom. We've never seen Alice, and we've never seen Emmett. And so now I'm wondering, are we going to get their flashbacks in a future movie? Or hey, maybe we'll flash back to when Charlie and Bella's mom were married. Who knows what sort of, sort of flashbacks we're going to get? <laughs> There's so much backstory we need, so much exposition backstory, and I I'm. It's Baxposition. Baxposition! Yeah. Can I just say, what the hell was Edward doing going to Florida? Like, that is, for a person who has to deal oh with God. Sparkle, like, that is the wrong state to go to. Uh, how did he get from the airport to the car? Yeah. Like, how did he get, like, how does he do anything? That, well, we didn't uh, talk about awful. that in Phoenix, too, but so, apparently that was a that was a thing there. I don't know. It was nonsense. We do have the the scene in in the tent where there is uh, the boys have a chance to talk because <laughs> Jacob Jacob aptly describes himself as hotter than uh, Edward in one of the thinnest digs I think that has been written and climbs into the sleeping bag and then proceeds to just I don't know mind violate her while she sleeps just to you know, for his own satisfaction and to get under Edward's skin. Uh, pretty, pretty dark setup. But the boys do get a chance to talk about how, gosh, if I didn't hate you so much, I might actually find you a friend. And uh, so that's, I don't love it. I, I don't love it. But it is a moment of quiet uh, in the film uh, that that we do get between the boys. Yeah, that whole thing. I mean, that's that's the conclusion of our love triangle, that they, they feel like, okay, you know what, we can get along because we're going to try to save Bella. I, it does end the final scene of the movie. They're back in the field. And I, oh, God. Well, it is the final. I, I just uh, moved a window and saw the chat room, and I missed some things. If you want to become a member of the next reel, you could join us for our live uh, our live recordings uh, like Brian did in the chat room, and you would be able to remind us of things like, oh, don't forget, Bella kisses Jacob in such a weird setup. Kiss me. Why does she say that? Andy, why does she say that? I think I might have an answer, and it's the her last scene of the movie, but I am curious your take on it. If, if you're looking for any logic, this is the wrong conversation. You're not going to have it? Okay. I the the last scene of the movie she's with J, she's with Edward and he's he, they somehow meander into this conversation of why you really really want to do this they set a date it's a month before she turns 18 
uh, or 19, so she's still 18 because she doesn't want to be more than a year older than him. Um, but she has this line where she says, I'm weird. I've always been weird. And it's because I think that I was actually born of, to be a vampire and you're going to help me transition. It's movie celebrating transitions. It's a, it's a movie celebrating transition, yes. This is a person who was born in the wrong body. That's what that's what the movie is trying to be. I don't even know that the movie knows that it is that. But she has known she's a vampire all along. And she now feels like this is her way. Edward's her way in. And he kind of laughs it off, just like they laugh off all the emotional manipulation in the last three movies. But I think it's really important to recognize that this is Bella's central agency in the movie, that she doesn't really want to hang with Edward at all. I think she just wants to be a vampire, hashtag that vampire life, and then uh, just, you know, kind of because she likes to be an immortal. And therefore, it's like every other vampire movie ever. There's always the character that wants to be a vampire uh, because they want to live forever and all those benefits. So, oh my God. Well, but let's not forget, she also wants to do it in this order. She wants to get married because, again, you know, LDS, Stephanie Meyer, you have to get married before you can have sex, abstinence, abstinence. Let's make sure everybody remembers that. We got to get married and then we're going to have sex. And because I want to feel it the way that, you know, I feel it in my body as a, as human, a human. And then you can transform me. I just want to make sure that we remember that because I feel like that might be important. I think that's important. And I think it's the in I think in the beginning of the next because I last night I finished this movie and I started watching the first 10 minutes of the next movie. And I think it's in the first 10 minutes. Spoiler alert that she says, I'd like to change the condition. You need to sex me now. Or was that in this movie? I get them very confused. Um, so there's she's still horny. Like this is the Bella's still horny for any kind of transition she can get. I think Edward's just afraid to say, I really don't want to transform you until you're 100 like me so that we can actually be more similar in age. Right. <laughs> right. I, there's, it, it's possible that you could watch this movie and think that, that Edward is hiding something maybe more, uh, uh, more sort of deep in his personality, that he doesn't want to have sex with her at all. Is Edward gay? Is that what it is? He's just looking for a beard in this case? Like, he just needs to pretend like there's some sort of of weird sexual uh, vampire politics that we don't know about? I think there might be. I think that's what we're... I, th I think that's what we've uncovered. She's transitioning, and everybody else doesn't have sex anymore because they've, they're vampires. There is certainly probably a line of fanfic that you're now falling into. <laughs> Andy... We're doing a whole series on what is essentially fan fiction of itself. I don't know why that's a problem. Can I bring an, up another point? I, I have two more points to talk you about can before we wrap this show okay. up. Uh, number one, these vampires sparkle because apparently they are Terminators. When they die, <laughs> they are silver on the inside. They're like just solid silver. They look like they are... Uh, robotic, <laughs> you know, liquid metal things that that break. Mm -hmm. What? Doom, 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 doom. I like I, that really when when we first get to the point. 
I think we first see it in the because I don't recall that in the, either of the first two films. I feel like it's when Riley is getting upset with some of his newborns who are being a little too aggressive, or maybe some of the newborns are being aggressive with each other and kill one another, something like that. But somebody gets killed, and they break the other one, and it is like a transfer. It is like a Terminator getting broken. They're made of crystal. Yeah, that's what. So, what's your problem? Do you have any thoughts, or are you just like, <laughs> yep? ridiculous i i don't know man they it's like when they stop moving they turn to ice well that's why they're so sparkly right that's why they're so sparkly. i think that might be that might be legitimately it like that might be the, I think that's exactly the level of the strategy they did here yeah when you break them they they're just all sparkle they're like little gems when you when you break us do we not sparkle <laughs> i think the shakespeare wrote that number two once again, we have a change in composer. We're moving to Howard Shore, who I generally like, but in the case of this film, did not care for this. Like he, he kind of, I mean, it's subdued. He kind of seems to be latching onto some of the kind of the, the elements that had come from the previous films, but he's not bringing back any of the previous themes. And it's just like, what, what happened to the score? Like, where did it go? And I was really disappointed with what he did uh, with this, uh, with this score. So that was a frustrating element for me having enjoyed the past two. So, yeah, I agree with you. The score was not great. I, I don't know what this movie was. It was not a good, good movie for me. Uh, wasn't made for me. That's fine. Not a good movie for me. But still, in the context of being able to enjoy what these films are, I wasn't really able to enjoy this one, and I was at least able to enjoy the previous two. That's telling, because, again, these films weren't made for me, but I could enjoy the last two. And Kristen Stewart's better in this one, but I still couldn't enjoy this film. It just it felt really slow. It, just, it was kind of a tedious uh, film to get through, and that was frustrating. My my last point on things that feel shoehorned in, we have a whole sequence when they go back to the school, the token let's go back to school sequence where they're sitting at the table talking about the graduation speech. And then that is called back when Anna Kendrick's uh, character, Jessica, is actually giving the graduation speech. And it's shot like the end of a John Hughes movie. And I it's supposed to make some grand point. And my note, <laughs> I wrote this note. What a super dramatic graduation speech. I sure hope Anna Kendrick has a role in this film. Uh, and it turns out she really doesn't like talk about a, another weird shoehorned thing in this movie. It is not good. It it feels like there are elements thrown into the story that Stephanie Meyer thinks are likely saying a lot to young people. And again, maybe young people are taking some of this stuff away, but it felt like that was in here because the whole speech was about making mistakes. This is our time to make mistakes and, and screw up our lives so that we can fix it later. And it seemed like the whole reason that was here was so that we as the audience acknowledge that Bella could be making a big mistake, but she's just in this point of her life where it's okay to make these mistakes and figure things out. And yeah, that was kind of like what I read Stephanie Meyer trying to say about Bella's choices. Yeah. And that's that's the uh, that's the way everybody needs to get out of force. That's the way the movie goes. All right. Well, everybody, we will be right back. But first, our credits. Never 
Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Chris Mason, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at v-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Or Jasper will punch you. Never lose focus. Or a vampire will hug you. No. <laughs> Andy, how to do it award season? Surprisingly better than the last one. 22 wins with 34 other nominations. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, but lost to Alice in Wonderland. Just a point to recognize, Alice in Wonderland also beat Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Oh, I don't care for that. What's wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? I know. At the MTV Movie and TV Awards, it won Best Movie, Best Male Performance, Pattinson, Best Female Performance, Stewart, Best Kiss, Pattinson and Stewart, Best Fight, Edward vs. Riley and Victoria. The nominations were Best Male Performance by Lautner, who lost to Pattinson, Best Kiss by Stewart and Lautner, but that lost to Stewart and Pattinson, and Best Breakout Star, Xavier Samuel, who lost to Chloe Grace Moritz in Kick-Ass. At the Teen Choice Awards, it won Choice Vampire, Pattinson, Choice Actor in a Sci-Fi or Fantasy, Taylor Lautner, Best Male Scene Stealer for Kellen Lutz, again, what do the teens have with this guy who's ever barely in these movies? I don't know. Same thing, best female scene stiller for Ashley Green, who's at least in it more. Um, nominees, choice vampire Nikki Reed, but she lost to Robert Pattinson. Uh, actor in a sci-fi fantasy, Pattinson, but lost to Taylor Lautner. Best uh, sci-fi fantasy movie, but lost to Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. A lot of the rest of these lose to Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, like Best Actress in a Sci-Fi Fantasy. Kristen Stewart lost to Emma Watson. Bryce Dallas Howard lost Best Movie Villain to Tom Felton. Best uh, Lip Lock between Stewart and Lautner. And another nominee between Stewart and Pattinson. Both of those lost to uh, Emma uh, Watson and Daniel Radcliffe in Harry Potter. And uh, Best Breakout Male Star Xavier Samuel, Samuel lost to Alex Pettifer in I Am Number 4 and Beastly. Interesting. And do you want to know the Razzies? <laughs> and is it, I mean, do we need a separate show? I'll just tell you. It had nine nominations total, and it did have one win, and that was for Worst Supporting Actor Jackson Rathbone, who also won for this and The Last Airbender. Yeah, I thought uh, I, I thought Rathbone. I've seen him interviewed a couple of times, and he's such a nice guy, like a good person. It's too bad when good people end up in things like this. Well, at least he had more to do here. I'll give him that. Yep, for sure. How to do it at the box office? Uh, well, for Slade's film, he had a budget of $68 million, again, an increase from the previous entry. That is about $79.5 million in today's dollars. This one was the only one to try a summer release, opening June 30th, 2010, opposite Grown Ups and The Last Airbender. It looks like they were trying to avoid the Harry Potter juggernaut of Deathly Hallows Part 1, which did take the Thanksgiving spot. So that's probably why they shifted it. This landed in the number one spot and stayed there for two weeks, just like the last two entries. And just like those two, it only stayed in the top ten for five weeks. So far, it's a weird pattern for these films. 
And just like those, it also did really well, going on to earn $300.5 million domestically and $405.5 million internationally for a total gross of $826 million in today's dollars. That is actually a drop in adjusted gross from the last one. Regardless, the movie went on to earn an adjusted profit per finished minute of $6 million, just barely below New Moon. Well, I don't know what to do with that information, Andy. I guess I'm I guess I stand with some solace in the fact that it's still a five on the IMDb scale, which is closer to where I would rate it myself. It has its fans. I do wonder if those fans still are fans or if they have also faded. You know, it's one of these properties that feels like of its time, but as time goes on and people look at it and go, Yeah, he's really these are both terrible men for somebody, and she's just a mess. Yeah, they're terrible. Well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here is the trailer for next week's movie, The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, Part 1, directed by Bill Condon. You ready? Just don't let me fall down. Never. I, Edward Cullen... Take you, Bella Swan. For better or for worse. To love. To cherish. As long as we both shall live. This is how I'll remember you. Pink cheeks. Heartbeat. I think I'd be used to telling you goodbye by now. It's impossible. Whoa. The fetus isn't compatible with your body. It's too strong and fast growing. It's crushing you from the inside out. Your heart will give out before you can deliver. You did this. I can't see Bella's future anymore. We don't know what they've bred. We have to protect the tribe before it's too late. You're the enemy now. Sam won't hesitate. You will be slaughtered. I'm starving you by the hour. I'm the one who loses you. You have to accept what is. You've given me no choice! Get ready. They're coming for Bella. They're not gonna touch her. If you kill her, you kill me! Letterboxd, Andy. Have you heard of Letterboxd? I think you have. It's our favorite social media uh, network for movie lovers. Uh, you can find us over there. I'm Pete Wright. Andy's Soda Creek Film. You can follow us. Join us. See our reviews, ratings, all the movies we cover. The Next Reel as a show is over there, too. Letterboxd.com slash The Next Reel. And you can find our schedule and all kinds of stuff. If you fall in love with the place like we have, like we have, you can get 20% off an upgrade, removes ads, supports the team, to pro or patron by using the discount code NEXTREEL. 
or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd. You'll be whisked over to the checkout page where you can sign up, get that 20% off. Andy, what are you going to do? Five stars, no heart? <laughs> uh, the last one I gave one and a half with a heart. I It's a tough call. Do I do one and a half and just say no heart? Um, I, it was such a slow, like, I just had a hard time. I think I'm just going to do one star, no heart with this one. Yeah, we're right in alignment. I'm one star, no heart. I own this movie now, Andy. I own it. It was part of the deal. $14 for all five movies. And so now I own it. I, it's in my, I have to look at it. It's in my collection. That's your choice. You wanted to buy it. You could have, you could have rented you it. You can't, you can't light a digital movie on yeah, fire that's the problem with digital as much as you try you lose the yeah. whole device if you had a physical one you could All snap right. it in half and throw it <sighs> maybe i need to buy an ipad just for <laughs> just that and just download this movie and just go outside and stomp <laughs> that's <on> right <laughs> well those ratings will be over in our letterbox account don't forget you can visit the slash letterboxd to get your patron or pro membership and it works for renewals as well so what did you think about the twilight saga eclipse we would love to hear your thoughts Hop into the Show Talk channel on Discord, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. I have a zero-star review. It's just a comment. Okay, and I feel like I feel like I need to say it because it's really satisfying to me, but I don't know if it's true. So this comes unverified. This is a zero star from Sophie, who says every day I think about Robert Pattinson saying in an interview that he thinks Stephanie Meyer is mentally unstable. <laughs> I don't know if Sophie is dreaming that, like just wish wishing it, or if that's a true thing. I might need to dig up, do some interview digging for our next show. <laughs> I need to get the fact checker on that. Well, I have a three star by Trin who has this to say. The craziest thing about this movie is that Bella's own mother doesn't attend her high school graduation. <laughs> I hope she goes to the wedding. <laughs> Good point. Good point. We'll see. What's up with mom? I just I just love being free. Free with my baseball player husband as we travel around the 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 baseball parks and play baseball. <laughs> I just want to lay in the sun some more. Andy, she, fact checking is up. I got the article up. It's from the Evening Standard that I found that is, um, he says she's completely mad. <laughs> That's super satisfying. Oh, my gosh. He was almost fired from Twilight. He did, this was, he did the whole interview on Howard Stern. Oh, man. I'm going to really? devour this for next week. Get ready. Coming wait. in hot. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. 
and their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. 